Blog Talk Radio. joining us again today. Today we're going to be continuing on our very interesting path of coming to understand what it is that takes uh, it takes to make a better world. And we look in the world of politics, we look in the world of economics, we look in the worlds of art, film, health, wellness, well-being, psychology. Yes, we look at a rather broad swath of those contributing variables to the creation of a better world. And we better because it really takes a lot. It takes a lot of heart. It takes a lot of soul. It takes a lot of spirit. And it takes a lot of doing. And that's what we specialize in here at A Better World and on our website, abetterworld.tv. So if you're not yet a subscriber to our weekly newsletter, please do go there and uh, become part of it. Today, we are going to be speaking for the full program with Catherine Austin Fitz, who is the publisher of the Solari Report and managing member of Solari Investment Advisory Advisory Services, LLC, and C-Lane Advisory, LLC. Catherine is a former managing director and member of the board of directors of Dylan Reed and Company, Inc., and president, uh, former president of Hamilton Securities Group. Catherine served as Assistant Secretary of Housing, Federal Housing Commissioner in the first Bush administration, is the graduate of University of Pennsylvania, and a BA, MBA from Wharton. She has accomplished a tremendous amount in her decades of service as an investment banker, as an entrepreneur, as an investment advisor, and as an advisor and publisher of the Solari Report, which can be, uh, it's made available both by subscription as well as um, through her blog, another form of it. So it's for all people of all walks of life, Catherine was telling me earlier, and people, interestingly, from people who are homeless all the way to the top CEOs in our country uh, read it and get educated by her work. We're going to be focusing on uh, something that's really very important in our lives that we really don't spend enough time learning about. And it pivots on this question. How much of, how many of us 
do understand anything about the monetary system, whether that's local or looking at the world economy. We certainly hear a lot about it in the news and in the newspapers and the media all the time. We hear about economies crashing. We hear about the global world uh, economy doing poorly. We hear about the euro failing. We hear about the dollar getting stronger or weaker. But what does it all really mean? Sometimes I think it's almost like children asking our mothers about how babies are born. And we're told something rather mysterious like, well, son, it was a stork. And yes, of course, some of our understanding is a bit more sophisticated than that. But indeed, when we really drill down, we see that there is a lot of inconsistency and actually questions involving integrity, ethics, and accountability. And these are some of the subjects we'll be dealing with today as we all come with Catherine's guidance to a a greater understanding of the economy and currency and money and what it means both globally as well as on a personal level. So, Catherine, are you on the line? Mitchell, can you hear me? I can hear you just fine. Oh, good. Okay. I'm Wonderful. Here. Welcome to a better world. Thank you so much for having me. I I very much enjoyed meeting you in Holland and thought, oh, Indeed. this is going to be good. <laughs> yes, well, good. That is mutual, Catherine. And even before Holland, I had a good friend um, apprise me of your work some years back. And I've been um, following you for some time, and Uh I was thrilled when I found out you would be at the conference and uh, where I was the MC. so I got to talk to everybody, Uh including you, and it's really been a pleasure to get to know you. I I think so well of uh, your work, and your story is really so interesting and instructive. So if you would start with that, you have a very particular story. Um, that has brought you to what it is you're doing today and thinking the way you think today. And if we could start with that, and then we'll kind of bear down into greater particulars after our audience learns about what you went through, both in government and in the private sector, when you sought to take your knowledge of money and currency and economy and make it available, you could say, to the masses in a very responsible way. Well, I, um, you know, I have to start out in West Philadelphia because that's really where it started. I grew up in West Philadelphia. Do you remember yeah. Chubby Checker and the Twist? Oh, I do. I grew I up. I did it regularly away. back then. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up a block away from Chubby Checker's mother. You know, when <laughs> Chubby Checker—that was when my love for pink uh, Cadillac convertibles started. He would come back with this. <laughs> He was the star. Oh, that's funny. You and Elvis <laughs> Presley, right? So, well, Elvis Presley, no, Elvis Presley gave his mom a pink Cadillac for, in 1954. I know it's at the Graceland Museum here in Memphis. Oh, I occasionally go worship it. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> anyway, so I, right. I grew up in A childhood in idol. <laughs> yes. I grew up in, in West Philadelphia. My, um, yes. my father came back from the war and using a VA mortgage insurance, bought a little row house in West Philadelphia. He was a surgeon and wanted to be near the operating room. And yeah. um, and I grew up on the streets of West Philadelphia. And when I was a little girl, 
there were four fraudulent uh, home builder deals, in, and what's interesting is it's the same pattern as, oh. you know, we, we've been dealing with the same pattern for many years. As decades, you see today in your yes. adult life. And yeah. and so these four homes is kind of scam home builder deals, uh, so they were refinanced, recapitalized, defaulted, and for four years they were on the corner with big signs saying up by order of the Assistant Secretary of Housing, Federal Housing Commissioner. And I used to walk by these four boarded-up homes funny. and think, who is this idiot? Because we had a family of six living across the street from us in a one-bedroom apartment. So six people in a one-bedroom apartment mm-hmm. and all these homes boarded up and empty. And mm-hmm. I decided, you know, and, and then we saw drugs come in and sort of ruin the neighborhood. And, and I decided when I was a little girl that this didn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense. It seemed to me that the whole situation was entirely suboptimized, if you will. Suboptimized. So, so, so what wonderful rhetoric. I like that. Everyone kept saying, yeah. oh, you know, we have to deal drugs because we have to make money and we have to do these home builder scam deals because it makes us money. And I thought, well, you know, what is this money thing and why is everybody, you know, destroying real wealth to make money? Yes. So I, I decided, okay, well, I'm going to learn how all the money in the neighborhood works and see how to turn this around. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, because it seemed to me that, that it it was more sensible to make money doing things that built and created wealth than destroying it. Anyway, what yeah. I didn't know at the time, Mitchell, was that to understand, you know, if if you look at how both the public and private money in our world is organized and reported and accounted for, um, it's accounted for on a functional basis and not a place basis. So it becomes very, very difficult for people to align their financial ecosystem, if you will, with their mm-hmm. living systems. You know, we live in a place, we walk around and drive around in a community, you know, and we have life around us, whether it's the trees, the animals, the birds, the environment, or us and our families yeah. and communities. So, you know, you, you there's this complete disassociation between the organization of the financial system and the reporting with places. So I didn't realize that to literally understand how the money in a place works, you had to learn the entire global thing. <laughs> system. I I went off on my little mission, so I went to college, and I traveled around the world, and I went to business school, and I went to Wall Street because I thought, okay, well, the the place you can learn the most about money is on Wall Street, right? Sure. Off I went and had a wonderful 11 years, became a partner and a member of the board of directors of Dylan Reed. That was Dylan Reed, uh uh-huh. Yeah, one of the reasons I wanted, and I talk about it, of course, I have an online book called... um, Dylan Reed in the Aristocracy of Stock Profits, and I described some of those years. Yeah. But I, mm-hmm. um, one of the reasons I went to Dylan Reed was they would let you move from department to department, so you were allowed to work in many. You didn't get pigeonholed in one thing. And mm-hmm. I just kept thinking, okay, if I learn all the different, you know, if I learn equities and I learn bonds and I learn energy and I learn IPOs yeah. and I learn venture capital, I learn mergers and acquisitions. Right. You know, it's sort of like the liberal arts of the of economics. Right. So, so I was yeah. trying to kind of put into my toolkit a little bit of every market in the world. Anyway, so finally, it didn't take yeah. me long to realize, you know, this is really all being rigged from Washington. <laughs> so really? I, had, uh, yeah, I had worked in the '84 and '88 campaign, and decided, okay, if I'm going to learn how the money works, I want to go to Washington, and I ended up. Um, 
and I'll never forget it. I was being sworn in, you know, and they ha- I had one hand on the Bible and the other hand held up. As the assistant secretary of and HUD. The, and, the, and the secretary of HUD said, uh, you know, by order of the president, you are now the assistant secretary of housing, FHA commissioner. And I said, oh, no, I'm the asshole. Oh, <laughs> as a little my. girl, I was, you know, I'd look at that sign because yeah. it's on all the foreclosure signs. And I'd, yeah. I'd say, who is that idiot? And, you know, I, I really use the A word, but I'll use idiot. Yes, right, idiot. right. So who is that idiot? And I said, oh, no, I'm the idiot. I just froze. I'll never forget the moment. I said, I'm oh, the idiot. And I walked downstairs and I said, how many foreclosed properties do we have? And they said 50,000. And I said, so, you know, hundreds of thousands of children hate me. Oh, my yeah. God. Right. <laughs> we must right. do something about day that. Day one. Day one of your new day, job, Captain. Well, right? day one after being confirmed. You you don't get confirmed on day one, I assure you. Anyway, yeah. so so um, so I became intensely interested in, uh, in how we could uh, bring transparency to uh, – to the federal investment of mortgage and housing credit by place in a way that would allow neighborhoods to reoptimize. Let me give you an example. So while I was assistant secretary, I had um, the head of the Chicago Housing Authority come to me and say, look, you're rehabbing public housing in Chicago, HUD is, and you're spending $250,000 per unit. We have uh, FHA foreclosed properties that we could buy and rehab for fifty to a hundred thousand dollars in the same, you know, four to ten block area, contiguous. Uh-huh. Let us take that two hundred and fifty thousand and create four housing units instead of one. In other words, let's yeah. re-optimize the investment by place so that we optimize return on the investment to taxpayer within a community. And I said yeah. no because that was illegal. It was illegal to move it from one item item to another. But that got me intensely interested in bringing transparency because I felt if communities could see the, you know, and geographical information system software was just beginning to develop, if, mm-hmm. if, if neighborhoods could see and the small business people, the chamber, the rotary, everybody who cared could see how the money works yeah. within a place, they could see tremendous options to re-engineer it. Now, if you're a citizen or a local government official and you go to the federal government and your congressman and say, look, we want, we don't want four homes. We, we would rather cash in four homes and get one home, you know, for the federal dollar. That makes no sense. There are all sorts of laws and principles about fiduciary obligation and using money well. And sure. I always felt that trans- and, and for the public And for the common public good. Absolutely. So I always so felt you can't that, be helping one person when you could be helping equally four. Right. And so four families, even more accurately. Yeah. My company, when I left uh, the administration, I started an investment bank, and several years later, we got hired back on competitive bid to service the lead financial advisor for mm-hmm. HUD for the FHA, and we started to do. They had very significant. Um, they had about ten, twelve billion dollars of defaulted mortgages, and we started to help them package and do loan sales. And as we were due diligence in communities, we found the same thing. We found that they were rehabbing or constructing public housing for 250000 a unit when 50000 would buy, and for low dollars you could rehab a, a FHA foreclosed property. And I took that, in fact, it was New Orleans with very significant uh, patterns that way, 
And Mm -hmm. I took my numbers to the assistant of the person running that public housing program, and I said, look, we could, you know, we have all these communities where we could create four houses for the price of one. And she turned bright red and said, but how would we generate fees for our friends? Oh, my. So what I realized was, you know, what we need to do I had started when I was the Assistant Secretary of Housing, inspired by the Chicago Housing Director. I had mm-hmm. started. I had ordered our operations to put together place-based financial statements, mm-hmm. so that we could produce very clear disclosure, both internally for the regional administrators and the you know the people working within the civil service, the kind of financial information they needed. And yes. it was amazing. If you just mapped out with geographic information software where the foreclosures were, what a story yes. it told. And, um, you know, I've always In found... In terms people, of wealthy neighborhoods versus impoverished ones? Um, it, you know, it could tell you all sorts of things. It could tell you that a great deal of yeah. money was being spent and you were getting no result of anything. You were harming the neighborhood because too much credit can destroy a neighborhood. Yeah. And um anyway, could you explain so, how? Uh yes. Uh and and let me just say that this you know, we're talking about a topic which is like the joy of cooking their thousands of recipes. Yes. So um uh there's thousands and thousands of recipes. In the old days, if yeah. I uh let's say we had some banks in a community and they made mortgage loans that they kept on their balance sheet. Mm-hmm. They had a vested interest in making sure that there was no narcotics trafficking in that community because it mm-hmm. would cause the mortgages to default or go down in value or the houses to go down in value the and they could lose down, money. Right. right. Yes. But houses they go can, underwater the way right. they are today. Yeah. But if they can just wrap them up with government credit and sell them off to a government agency like Ginny May or yes. um now that Fannie and Freddie have been nationalized, uh you know, mm-hmm. then they then then they can make a great deal of money originating and servicing mortgages, and have absolutely no risk. So if the neighborhood goes to pot, and they're handling the money laundering, they make more money from destroying the neighborhood than building it up. So so government credit can be used to create very perverse and negative incentives. Where right. what we've seen, Mitchell, is we've seen. Um, a process in America where you have consolidated control of retail markets in part by doing leverage buyouts of neighborhood using narcotics trafficking and drug trafficking. Really? And yeah, you see, you know, it's, it's interesting because the pattern is the same around the world as it is here. It's just, you know, it's sort yes. of more subtly uh, presented and packaged. But if I bring drugs into a community in a way that just completely distracts the small business runs up their expenses, disorganize them. I make money out of that neighborhood. I use that money to then bring in the franchises and the big box stores. I've mm-hmm. basically engineered the retail markets into my infrastructure, and I've financed it with their money. It's literally a leverage buyout. Yes, interesting. It's a leverage Very buyout. Very interesting, but, Catherine, to apply that you know general principle of of business to that context. But you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. If you look at what narcotics trafficking and um, and mortgage fraud can do to harvest a place, it's quite it's quite extraordinary Mm -hmm. and very very profitable. And we're talking about infinite rates of return because when you buy 
very rich retail markets, you know, with the neighborhood's own cash flow, no money down. It's quite the, yeah. the financials are. Anyway, so so I decided after we left, after I left the administration, that I would I would try and build software tools that would allow, you know, there there are all sorts of rules about how data about money, taxpayers' money, government money, must be made available. And um, and so but I. Before you go into that, I, before you go into that, you said a couple of things that um, were striking to me, and I'd like you to clarify if you would. You said moving a line item from one line to another was illegal. What is that about? Um, there are all sorts of restrictions. Some some relate to laws, some relate to regulations, and some just relate to practices about uh-huh. how you can move money between different authorities and jurisdictions within the government, either within yeah. an agency or between agencies. And, yeah. in fact, one of the things that I had proposed was, um, and I, I suspect will be picked up on now that, um, you know, we're coming into a period of change and we can talk about that. Mm-hmm. I proposed literally identifying all of the government assets that were available for sale um, or needed to be privatized within a place mm-hmm. and give wide latitude to local municipal officials to reoptimize money within a place. So ah, example, yes. One things, yeah, one of the things that happened during Decentralizing that, authority, essentially. Right, and we need to talk about food stamp contracts because that's the mother of all examples in this area. Okay, good. Um, yeah, <laughs> but um, but if you uh, this is awesome. It's sort of like I'm gathering that you learned more in your time in the Bush administration at HUD than you did at Wharton. You know, I would say that I had an incredibly rich learning experience both times. Yes. So you know, okay. each. Uh, h- however, when you you know, think of HUD as the world's largest U.S. database on all U.S. real estate. Mm-hmm. And so if you want to understand how to rebuild the economy, you have to rebuild it one person, one household, and one place at a time. So America breaks wow. down to 3,100 counties. And if you want to mm-hmm. understand how to build wealth in America, then you need to understand how to build wealth in 3,100 counties. One, Interesting. You know, one county at a time. I used to tell, sure. it's funny, when I was in the administration, I used to tell people that the way you build a great economy is, you know, one child at a time. Yes. And, you know, you raise a child right and you educate yeah. them right and you bring them up healthy and right and everybody sure. saying, well, that's that's too hard. That takes too long. <laughs> right, right, right. Well, it's right. what it takes. Okay, it so, takes, right, exactly, yeah. exactly. So, one village at a time, what have you. But, yeah, this is a this is an amazing learning experience for me. One of the things to just interject here is that it sounds like one of the things you learned, and I'm still being surprised about even at this point in time, believe it or not, is that government acts and behaves like a business packaging mortgages and like when, according to my understanding of government, it is a non- uh, corporate entity that is there designed to serve the people, not its own interests, but the public interest. But well, by the sound of its operation, it's virtually a for-profit corporation. 
Well, first of all, you have to understand there is Do you no understand government. why I'm asking that question? Right, but here's the thing. Government, right now, 50% or more of the government, uh, of the economy, runs through the federal budget. Yeah. We have an incredibly, you know, we're more Soviet than the Soviet Union in terms of control ah. of the economy. And in the mortgage area, more than 80 to 90% of the of the credit and mortgage is directly or indirectly guaranteed by the U.S. government, and it's been that way for a long time. Yes. So we have a very government-guaranteed economy, and the problem with it is it creates very negative and perverse incentives. Yes. So, and And uh, what government has operated, you know, since I've been familiar with government, because I dealt a lot with government even on Wall Street, Government yes. has acted as a centralizer of the economy. So it's acted as a control mechanism. Mm-hmm. And government, you know, while it has tremendous operations, has become a bigger and bigger part of controlling, consolidating, organizing the U.S. economy. Government is not run by government. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you, you know, yes. I think of the president as the guy sitting behind the wheel, but the steering wheel doesn't connect to the wheels. There's a guy downstairs. <laughs> You know, and he's really driving. And that's how people say the the government, I don't know quite how to deal with it, because in my experience there is right. no government. There is a that's financial right. mechanism, but yeah. a sovereign government is one that has financial control and has information sovereignty, and the federal government doesn't have such a thing, and it's really become a very fractured kingdom of lots of different private interests. Yeah. And, um, like a bunch of fiefdoms. Right, a bunch of fiefdoms. And it's really we've really outsourced the federal government to be run by private corporations. Yes, indeed. So, the, the, the privatization of the prison system, of uh, security in so-called foreign wars, you know, all of this, Halliburton's and the rest of them. Well, I think it's Blackwater. worse than that because if, if you go to federal agencies – you know, the payment and information systems and databases are all run by yes. private defense contractors. ADT, even. et cetera, exactly. Well, right, you, right, right. I, pu- I recently published an article, Mitch, that for people who are more interested in this topic, called yep. um, Coming Clean Beyond the F- uh, Fiscal Cliff. Yes. And I described the systemic reasons why it is such a fractious, uh, tasks yes. to re-engineer the federal budget and sort of yes. what the obstacles are. Give your are. website for that. Okay, Give your it's, website. Uh, my website is solari.com, S-O-L-A-R-I.com. And um, the Dylan Reed story, which you put a link up to, is at dunwalkie.com, yes. D-U-N-W-A-L-K-E. Um, anyway, yes. so so let me return back to where we were. So, yes, please, absolutely. So, so I became very interested in, okay, how can we make all of this rich data that the federal government is required by law to make available and make available to people in a way that can help them really start to re-engineer government money in a way that will rebuild private wealth in America. And mm-hmm. that was in the 90s. We were so concerned about the fact that the World Trade Organization had come into being, the Uruguay Round of GATT had passed, and we were in the process planned out at the highest levels of the government and the financial sector, I can assure you, on shipping Mm -hmm. all the jobs abroad. And Mm. a major topic of conversation in Washington at that time, and I described this in the Dylan Reed story, is, okay, well, how are we going to help the American middle class 
jump the curve on the situation because if we don't re-engineer and change, they're all going to be, you know, they're all going to be jobless, jobless and yeah. homeless. Yeah. So I was part of a group that had a whole vision of how we could re-engineer government investment, do it with pension fund investment, and rebuild wealth tremendously to make sure that the baby boomers had sufficient retirement. Now, that plan was rejected, as I described in the Dylan Reed story, and instead um, what happened was we had the fraudulent inducement of America. We did. We issued massive amounts of mortgage and other paper, much of it fraudulent, and sold it to many of our pension funds. And What, and what made it fraudulent, Catherine? Here's, here's what make, it made it fraudulent. There were two major things, in my opinion, that made it fraudulent. One was, if I encourage you to take out a mortgage that you think you can afford, but I know, given what's, you know, what I am doing in other aspects of my life as the federal government or as one of the big New York Fed member banks, you yeah. know, I know the jobs are all going to shift, shift abroad, and you think you can afford this mortgage, but I know you can't. And mm-hmm. I don't tell you that, mm-hmm. then, then that is fraudulent inducement, and you may not be liable to pay back some or all of that mortgage. That's number one. So yeah. there was a real effort to fraudulently induce Americans, the people at the top of government, and this was a very much government-engineered housing bubble. The people at the top of the government knew it, knew that the middle class couldn't afford the debt they were taking on, and actively encouraged them to do so. And so this really. So worked. that means um, Fannie Mae, uh, Freddie Mac, everyone was in the heads of these organizations, then companies, uh, quasi agencies were wholly aware yes. of what it was they were doing. Yes, they. I mean, if you if you look at all these agencies, they were engineering and financing the movement of enormous amounts of manufacturing and other jobs abroad. But what was their incentive to do that? I, I missed that. Well, what was their incentive to export the jobs? The you could dramatically what? lower the cost of labor. So, oh, it was a labor issue. Okay, yeah. Uh, well, it was. You could dramatically lower the cost of labor, but you could also switch who owns certain things. So if mm-hmm. I have a company over here making naval ships, and I start a new company, and I have lots of shareholders here, but I start a new. Uh, company, shipbuilding company, somewhere where labor is cheap, and I get the Navy to switch the contracts over to my new company, then now oh, I'm yes. at 100% instead of having to share it with shareholders over here. Oh, yes. So I part understand. of it is, is not just that labor is cheaper. Almost a lot of times bait and switch. Yeah, there's bait, there's bait and switch. Then the last thing was there was an explosion of fraudulent mortgage securities. So you would you would issue a mortgage on a house, and then you would issue 10 other mortgages on the same house. And and really? uh, absolutely. Now, could I prove that in a court of law? What I've done in a series of different articles, the Dylan Reed article and then another one called Myth of the Rule of Law and some others, is describe why I believe that there was literally trillions of dollars of fraudulent mortgages issued as a as a systemic <coughs> plan. And um I'm getting ahead of myself and I think uh all of the efforts to bring about place-based financial disclosure, mm-hmm. one of the reasons they ran into so much uh, difficulty yeah. was that you cannot do that kind of fraud with the federal credit with that kind of transparency. Transparency solves 
a lot of corruption uh, problems. How right you are. How right you are. There's no way you could have had a fraudulent housing bubble to the extent that we had it if you'd had place-based financial disclosure, which is why, you know, I continue to say um, one of the things we can all do is pursue financial sort of aligning our financial ecosystems, understanding them for our place, and using that information to decentralize the economy, but in a way that builds wealth. Because the problem, of course, is, you know, this centralization of control is shrinking wealth. And what we need is we need a vision of how we rebuild and grow wealth um, and do it in a way that creates a far more diversified, decentralized economy globally. Exactly. So, Hold that thought. Let's okay. just let everyone know you are listening to A Better World with Mitchell J. Rabin. We're on every Wednesday night at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Thanks so much for joining us. And we are spending today's full program with Catherine Austin Fitz, who is the publisher of the Solari Report, S-O-L-A-R-I.com. You should certainly go to it. She's the uh, managing member of Solari Investment Advisory Services and C-Lane Advisory. She served uh, as Assistant Secretary of Housing under the first Bush administration and is speaking with us in some depth about her experiences there and on Wall Street and the way the international and local economies work and interface with each other. So, Catherine, please go on. Well, can I tell you the food stamp story? Because I think the food yes. story really Yes, yes, yes. But you were you were also, just remember, you're telling us also about the software program that you developed to promote local transparency of federal monies. But well, I, if you want to detour, go right ahead and we'll come back. Let, let me tell the food stamp story. We can detour yeah, sure. and, and talk about it's um, important. Absolutely. <laughs> how Community Wizard almost came to be. Um, uh-huh. So... So there's this wonderful woman in um, Florida a couple years ago who had lost her job. I think she was in her 50s and uh, finally just not able to find a job, very responsible, entrepreneurial kind of woman, hardworking, mm-hmm. uh, got food stamps to help supplement her income and at one point had a problem and called customer service to discover that she was speaking to somebody in India who worked for J.P. Morgan Chase. Now, what that meant was that J.P. Morgan Chase was getting a markup to do something that she could do. Yeah. So, and if she if she had that job, she wouldn't need food stamps. Yes. So, so we we look at the budget, and you'll see thousands of these examples. What you'll see is you'll see somebody in America who wants to work can work and um and they are having their income supplemented or in fact are being su- supported whether it's unemployment compensation hud housing subsidies um you know on stamps. and on and on food stamps yeah. and and uh and they wouldn't need any of that subsidy if they could do a job that in fact is being outsourced abroad with markups for big corporations now if you if you oh. look at all the um if you mapped out all the money in your place, county by county, for the federal government, what you mm-hmm. would what you would ultimately find if you could dig in and get the contracting budgets, which are about 
the hardest thing to get. Um, what you would find is that that some corporate contractor is being paid, uh, you know, fifty to one hundred and fifty dollars an hour to do something that with telecommunications could be shipped into your neighborhood, and you would love to do for twenty five dollars plus healthcare. Mm-hmm. In where I live, twenty five dollars plus healthcare in Harmon County, Tennessee, that's a sweet job. Yes. Yeah, especially yes. for people who, because of child, uh, I when I was. Uh, my company, Hamilton Securities in Washington, had an enormous amount of data servicing, and we started a training center and then a, a data servicing business in a residential complex in Washington just to prototype this and prove the point. And what we discovered was it was relatively inexpensive to um, to teach a portion of the population who had child care or parent care obligations and so really couldn't commute and do a corporate kind of schedule. It was relatively low cost to teach them how to do high quality data servicing it was more economic than shipping it to asia and um mm-hmm. and they could be phenomenally productive and were um yes the problem was of course that they would then start to see all the data about how all the money works <laughs> right right exactly right. so you end up with a government that is completely non-transparent and a government, as you said, that doesn't even exist as itself, but as a, essentially a, an economic mechanism of big business, in this case, J.P. Morgan, you know, that is getting a markup on the service and then exporting it, outsourcing, so they're paying some Indian woman, you know, a dollar an hour, and they're making 149 an hour. Right. What so have what you? What, you, what, what yeah. you've done is you've been able to consolidate, you've been able to squeeze labor and shift, you know, you're basically re-engineering the ratio between labor and capital so that yeah. capital gets the lion's share and a small handful of senior executives get the lion's share of the money, and that, yeah. you know, that is a very intentional plan and process. And the problem is, because I would, I would not say that corporations are running government. Um, I do think there's a, a dynamic, and I tried to explain this in the Dylan Reed story, where, you know, for, for many decades now, we've printed an enormous amount of currency and bonds and funny mm-hmm. money, and think mm-hmm. of that as like a tornado that's sucking up every dime. <laughs> yes, a vortex. So, you know, so so we hear this giant sucking sound from the real economy yes, as we try to keep all that, all that paper propped up. And if you've yeah. ever seen the movie Margin Call, there's some wonderful uh, stories about that dynamic where they try and uh-huh. explain how that's going on. But uh-huh. uh, And I tried to explain this in the Dylan Reed story, but if you're a congressman and you can get a dollar of net income switched from small business into a publicly traded stock, let's mm-hmm. say a stock is trading at a multiple of 15 times earnings, and you get a dollar of profit switched into that company, stock goes up $15, they can afford to give you a very sweet campaign contribution. Yes. And so what you see <laughs> is a giant sure. sucking sound of yes. money from the non-securitized economy, the real economy, into the securitized economy, because that's where political contributions come from. They come from capital gains on real estate. They come from capital gains on, um, you know, on uh, uh, on the stock market. Stock, right? Right. And in Dylan, in the Dylan Reed and the aristocracy of stock profits, I 
talk about a, a prison company and and how a prison company was uh, built by my old firm, Dylan Reed, as the financer, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and grew, and how you could make something that was fantastically uneconomic for the taxpayer, horrible yeah. for the culture and the world, mm-hmm. and engineer it in a way that it made a whole bunch of money for the Wall Street insiders. And yes. and that probably, trans, you know, the people who were making those profits then donated tons of money back into the... And I walk you through yeah. one case study. It was designed to be like a case study you would use in a business, in a business school or a, a law school to kind of show how the system works. So, yes. so what we're seeing is we're seeing the allocation of government resources to achieve political means, and in some cases you might agree with those means, in some cases you might disagree. But the but the means and the criteria are political as opposed to allocating the resources according to what makes the pie bigger. So, so in other words, we're optimizing government policy and government money to consolidate and centralize control as opposed to to optimize the economy. If you will, we have... And just actually serve the people. That seems like a phrase that has, you know, been antiquated at this point. Oh, I, I think it's far worse than, um, you know, not serve the people. I mean, I, I literally think... You're looking at a machinery which is harvesting the people. Yes, harvesting. Yes. So that's I a frightening describe... word. Could you say a little bit more about that? Well, I describe it as the tapeworm. So yes. I see us as having the planet as having a body, and we have a parasite. You know, we have a tapeworm. Um, mm-hmm. Jeffrey Smith. I'm a great fan of Jeffrey Smith, who I know you yes. know. Yes. And He's a good Jeffrey friend, says, yes. you know, we have to take the yuck factor up on these people. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. So I like the tapeworm because, you know, it. Jeffrey Smith, a very we've had on this show before, from. and is the is the um, author. Since you mentioned it, we should let people know of uh, Seeds of Deception and Genetic Roulette, as well as a film by the name of the latter, Genetic Roulette, right. on movie of the year on the Solari Report. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So. Um, yes. Yeah. So fabulous movie. If you haven't seen it, really fabulous Truly. documentary. You have to see it. Anyway, so so uh, uh, so I like to use the tapeworm analogy because everyone knows that when you get a parasite, it's important to eject it. And um, the thing that's interesting about a, a tapeworm that caused me to use the tapeworm to describe the centralization machinery um, mm-hmm. is that a tapeworm, Mitchell, injects into your body a chemical that makes you crave what's good for the tapeworm and bad for you. So yes. you see the tapeworm, and if you look at what's going on with corporate media and and you know many of the things we use to support yes. and give energy to the pro centralization team, you know mm-hmm. we are feeding the tapeworm, and we need to see it, and we need to say, oh, I have a parasite, and I need to, you know, I need to eject the parasite. Remove it. I need yep. to remove it from my mind. Starve I need it to out it from my body. Yep. I need to remove it. And, of course, we've all spent an entire lifetime being indoctrinated by the tapeworm and receiving its injections. And um, our theme for the year on the Solari Report is coming clean. And because I think, you know, critical to solutions is we need to get the tapeworm out of our minds, out of our bodies, and we need to, as we do, 
move to a higher mind where we can say, okay, how can I be about the business of, you know, protecting myself from being harvested in a way that helps others protect themselves? Mm-hmm. So, you know, because right now a yeah. lot of us make our money by helping the tapeworm harvest. That's right. It's an excellent analogy. It really is, Catherine. It, it's scary. It's so accurate, actually. <laughs> but it makes a good case, as we were talking about before the show, for the notion that we have of boycotting. So we're no longer continuing to invest our vote, which is our dollar, our strongest vote perhaps, in those companies and corporations and entities that continue to feed, they are the tapeworm. But we invest in, say, local economies and and, uh, ma and pa shops and local farmers, and that divests, and that changes the health of the being. You have to to be careful about it, because the tapeworm threads through everything. So I can come up in any neighborhood with small businesses that are far more tapeworm than... You know, the the interesting things about the bureaucracies and the big companies and government is it's yes. filled with wonderful, excellent people, you yes. know, who, 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 you know, went into whatever they're doing. They thought they were going to do, you know, they were going to help the world and save the world. So the world exactly. is full of, of hidden allies and good people everywhere. So, yes. so you want to be careful when you shift out of, you know, it, it's not automatic that the good guys are, are good, the little guys are good and the big guys are bad. <laughs> right. No, no, it's a well-made yeah. point. I understand that. I understand yeah. that. But And Monsanto has actually gotten in everywhere, if you want to think of it that well, way as I have, well. I have to say, I can't, I can't think of one good thing to say about Monsanto. Me neither. <laughs> <laughs> I tried once. You did? Yeah. I, I, I can't. I tried. <laughs> so, yeah, so please go on with the um so the analogy is a very good one and um it lays out. But what happened to circle back? What happened with your clear insight that began through the director of the Chicago Housing Authority of the importance of place to the economy of renovation, if you will, and then you generalized about having that software program. Could you pick up on that and what happened to you? Yeah, in the first Bush administration, I started to have place-based financial information developed at HUD. That got canceled when I left. Um, In the Clinton administration, I was able to persuade some of the government officials to start it up again. That got canceled. And then we said, well, you know, government clearly can't do it, so we'll do it as private citizens and entrepreneurs. And um, we started to build a software tool called Community Wizard that would allow mm-hmm. you to simply identify all the different databases and then start to aggregate and play with data that would help you sort of visually see government money. And uh, in on, the, case, on a local level, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you come into the to the website and it would say, you know, what's your What's your place? Is it your county? Is it your municipality? Is it your zip code? Is it your yes. congressional district? And it was uh-huh. very powerful. The um, I'll tell you one of my favorite stories. I had a partner from Wall Street who had grown up in Cuba and then come to America and had a very successful career on the trading floor. He built the trading floor at Morgan Stanley and then come to Dillon Reed. And he wow. came down in 1996, and we had these very 
with at high speed, high tech offices. We won the, um, mm-hmm. and you can see the picture on the Dylan Reed website. Uh, we'd won the architectural award from the American Institute of Architecture for high high tech uh, high tech advanced facility designs. Anyway, mm-hmm. so we had these big monitors up yeah. in the boardroom, and we got uh-huh. him in, and, I, and he was saying, you know, it's hopeless, it's so corrupt, there's nothing you can do. So I started to explain Community Wizard, and he said, yeah. oh, it will never work. So I said, okay, Luis, tell me where you live, and he said, I live in Bronxville. So I said to my assistant, I said, look, pull up everything we have on Bronxville. So we uh-huh. started, started to pull up all the numbers and gave him a complete download from what's called the Comprehensive Annual Financial Reports, which are... Um, reasonably useful financial reports that state and local officials prepare on their place that includes mm-hmm. the federal government money. And it's enormously, if you haven't looked at the CAFRAs for your area, I strongly recommend it. Anyway, so we pulled up the mm-hmm. comprehensive reports on Bronxville as well as the other data and started to show it to Luis, and he went nuts. He started screaming in Spanish about how corrupt <laughs> it was and blah, blah, blah. And But uh-huh. he had never seen the numbers. He had never seen the financial information, you know, you buy a stock and you get an annual financial report, but you pay taxes and you don't get an annual financial report for your place. There's no reason why right. you shouldn't. So the next morning I had a conference call with him, and he was he didn't call and his phone was busy. I got very irritated. I finally got through to him a couple hours later, and I said, Luis, we had a conference call at 1030. He said, I have been on the phone with the Deputy Mayor of Bronxville for the last four hours. We have gone through every one of these numbers, <laughs> item by item. He said, all this corruption is going to stop. I said, I thought you said it was hopeless. He said, that's till I had the numbers from my neighborhood. Oh, God, now, Catherine. You give, yes. you give, you give the, Empowerment. Right, right. Because, you know, there is so much waste. Yes. Um, so, you know, so I told you about the food stamps. Yes. But I could go on and on and on. If you look at um, the waste uh, and what could be reoptimized, just even with the rules. Let me give you another example. Mm-hmm. Um, if you come into a local municipality, what you will find is tremendous waste of resources, t- tremendous time spent on complying with enormous numbers of federal rules. And when I was uh, assistant secretary, I found real trouble in the field offices because they were overburdened with, um, you know, sort of requirements that didn't make a difference. So Mm -hmm. we came up with something called the anti-plan, where they would literally generate all the rules that they wanted to be excused from or all the work requirements they they wanted waived. And I would write jumbo, jumbo waivers that said, you have my permission as assistant secretary to not do any of this stuff this year. So, uh-huh. um, and and so, if you look at the, at the municipal level, there's a huge amount that could be reduced. And I once went to the undersecretary at HUD and said, "Look, let's do a process where you invite all the local officials to significantly relieve their time and money of federal requirements that really won't make much of a difference in that place." And he looked at me and he said, I can't do it. And I said, why not? It won't cost you anything under the budget, and you will provide tremendous resources available to the municipalities. And he said, there's no political percentage in it. It's boring. Oh, gosh. Well, I once had the Secretary of HUD tell me he was going to lose a half a billion dollars because he didn't want to take a bad headline. 
bad headline. Yes. Yeah. So. Oh yeah. I, I mean, the corruption you know, is. Louise was right that the corruption is so deep, but what you managed to do, obviously in that case, Catherine, was to equip him with the information, and that's that you have a wonderful quote on your website about information is the hardest currency. I love that. Right. Um, you equipped him with that information, which allowed him to go back with hard numbers to his, you know, selectman or, you know, uh, uh political figure there, official, and say, look here, look there, look here, look there. This has got to stop. And you really armed him with the right information. Well, that's why... That could could make a difference. You know, we're we're operating in a game of economic warfare. Yes. And you need intelligence or else you're going to get harvested. That's right. And that's what we need, and that's why we need the kind of media that you're providing... Yes, um, well, thank you. Thank you. You know, I I uh, want to actually pick up on a part of the tapeworm in the form of the story you told about the food stamps. So that's the economic job employment level that you uh, described in the story about the woman in Florida. Right. And However, reason- if we were to just take the subject at hand, which in this case is food, and we were to, you know, also since we mentioned here uh, Jeffrey Smith, and it suggests an idea of healthy eating and wellness, if those food stamps, that coupons that people who are on the stamp program receive, delineated what food it could buy and what it could not, we, we could also be going far to solve the health care system. Right. Because so- if this food weren't potato chips, but rather, you know, true leafy green vegetables and the like, we would be getting two birds in the sense with one dollar. Right. So if you look, uh, so now we're talking about reengineering the federal budget holistically. If you look at the food stamp program, you have used food safety rules and a variety of other regulations, both federal and state, to literally shut down and destroy enormous amounts of small farmers who are growing food you yes. know on a on a fresh basis. Yeah. So so we have federal rules and and government rules making sure that the small farmers can't function. And so now we have counties in Tennessee where we have landline fallow, 25% of the population unemployed and getting food stamps. Oh, and and what are they eating? They're eating food that's being trucked in from thousands of miles or railroaded in from thousands of miles away, and yes. and it's a far more processed and far less healthy diet and very much subsidized with agricultural subsidy. So if you look at the whole ecosystem of that, it's not economic. Correct. Okay? Correct. So now everyone yeah. will tell you that what they're doing for their <clears throat> step is cheaper, but if you look at the whole system – we are paying, you know, the taxpayer is paying a lot more to get that food than they would yes. have to if those people were independent farmers. And now, of course, people are getting sick. And as you know, our hero of the year was Joe Cross and Phil Staples from Fat Sick. Yes, that was Ed. beautiful. I love that. And Tell I everybody love what that, who they are. That's okay, great. Fat Sick and Nearly Dead is a marvelous documentary made by an Australian entrepreneur and investor named Joe Cross who had an immune system disease and after many years of trying to seek uh, help to solve this problem said, you know, I'm just going to have to 
solve this myself. I'm going to go on a 60-day juice fast. I'm going to go to America. And for uh-huh. the first 30 days, he was up in your territory. He was up in New York. And then he yes. spent the next 30 days driving across America and talking to people about food and nutrition. And he's a very charming, wonderful, extremely intelligent person. He yes. ran into a trucker from Iowa in, in an Arizona truck stop named Phil Staples, who had the same <laughs> immune disease, and he talked Phil Staples into doing a juice fast. And what is ha- what happens in this movie is you watch these two men transform into just, um, you know, I don't know how to describe it, because they transform, it's not just their bodies, their face, their aura, their skin, their life force. They they become mm. people who are just, you know, reeking with life force and vitality mm. and years and years younger. You see what health is. Health yes. comes not health stops being about health, it's about power. These are people yeah. who become very personally powerful through mm. their change in diet and nutrition and they mm. grow tremendously in terms of their individual personal power whether yeah. it's their mental power or their physical power, and it's just remarkable to watch and, of course, very, very inspiring. And what you realize sure. watching is um, there's one lovely moment when they describe Phil going and getting his vegetables conventionally and it's $14 a day, and then he goes organically, and they're $28 a day, and then he compares that to his brother who's just had a heart attack, which cost $55,000. And what you you realize is we don't need health insurance. We need health. That's right. And and health. The best health insurance is to take good care of yourself. Right. And and health, if you look, whether you use the food stamp example in the data servicing system or the the food part of the food uh, system, from a a taxpayer standpoint, we're building – an industrial agriculture system which is unbelievably expensive to the taxpayers. Yeah. And and um you know it is being engineered to consolidate control of the agricultural system globally, but it has mm-hmm. nothing to do with creating an optimal agricultural system which is economic. Exactly. It has to exactly. do with making sure you can centrally control and that includes the adoption of GMO uh, GMO seeds and Foods. the patent of life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. And pat, right, the pat, the whole idea, the biotech idea of patenting life, when that became past the Supreme Court, was it in the seventies that it was possible to patent life forms? Right. That was a real game changer legally, right. and yeah. that just opened up that whole industry. And there's no stopping it at this point, it appears. I think there is a way to stop it, and that's to change that legislation is one. Um, and so that they would put the lid on patenting life forms because <clears throat> it's an endless disaster that just keeps going on and on. And it's it raises the most serious of ethical questions that uh, human beings can face, you know. Well, I think the question is, is, is this do why why is it desirable to centralize control of the seed and food supply? And I think one reason is uh that if you're going to introduce new energy technology yes. and but you want to continue to control the currency but create a global uh digital currency, 
then mm-hmm. you need something better than oil in a world of new energy technology to serve as the backing for that currency. And I think gold is going to be an important part, but I think food is essential because we've always, you mm. know, the, the guy who controlled the currency all, you know, controlled the trade in one or more of the most powerful assets. One of the reasons that we named C-Lane Advisory C-Lane is, um, you know, I was always trying to explain to everyone that C-Lanes control the world. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you interesting. Yes. Well, traditionally that's Because you're controlling the trade, in other words. Yeah, you, you control... Yeah. Because the British Food. and the, the Americans control the C-Lanes and now the satellites, it's now C-Lanes and satellites, they control yeah. the trade in oil and the critical the critical assets, but with oil diminishing over time and you wanting to shift to a global currency and a digital one, then you yes. need a new asset to control, and I think that's food. That's one. But the other mm-hmm. thing is when you when you can, you know, patent life and create intellectual capital value through the seed supply, then you're mm-hmm. talking about another kind of control, a new level of control, and then you're literally talking about shifting to a totalitarian system where if you want to, you can significantly depopulate. Yeah. So I think you're talking about remarkable central control of a kind which is more frightening than anything we've ever envisioned. Yes. It it leaves Orwell behind. Yes. That's a very good description, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, it's true. And, you know, just like – Rothschild was credited with saying, he who can, I don't care who runs the government, but he who controls the money supply controls the, who controls the currency controls the country. And that's partly true. And what you're saying, Catherine, really suggests, and I really do think it's more true, uh, he or she who controls, they who control the food supply really controls the country or the or the planet itself. Uh, I don't think it's either or. I think it's both. I think they're like two sides yeah. of the coin. Yes. And, you know there no are intended, right? Yeah. yeah. There, right. there, there are. Think of a balance sheet. There's an asset side and there's a financial and liability side. Sure. And the the currency is on the right side of the balance sheet and the food's on the left hand side of the balance sheet. Yes. I do think yes. we should talk about the fiscal cliff. And let's and do that, but. But let, I want to remind you that first, would you kindly come full circle with the story about the geographic place uh, software, sure. the Community Wizard, because you went off your own cliff through that, and then we'll come back to this thing they call the fiscal cliff. Well, I would say that Jonah got spat out of the whale. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> but um, what happened was... Uh, if you've ever seen the movie Enemy of the State with Will Smith and Gene Hackman, yeah. um, so I had a friend once who stood up at a conference and said, who here has seen the movie Enemy of the State? This woman played Will Smith in real life. Um, uh-huh. So what happened was I got targeted uh-huh. in one of these sort of shaggy dog stories of um, 18 audits and investigations by a whole stream of different government agencies. I mean, essentially what happened, Mitch, was – if you were going to have have to get a house, if you wanted a housing bubble, you had to get the honest folks out of Washington. Yeah. And yes, and yes. we were the lead financial advisor to a group of civil servants and government officials at HUD who I think were trying to run things clean, and so we got thrown out. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, but the story is more complex and murky than that. That's one of the reasons I wrote the Dylan Reed story, and we ended up, um, you know, we were in one of those things that where it's hopeless and you're not supposed to win, and they kept doing things to falsify evidence and frame us, and it was, you know, it was very ugly. It was very dirty. Um, By and, the way, did you ever have access, Catherine, to um, President George Bush when you were in that high-level position at HUD? Well, I, you know, I would bump into him in the campaign, but I, you know, I wasn't over at the White House. I was yes. over at HUD. So, yes, I see. Know, so there I was not Bush. an opportunity to discuss any of your uh, innovative ideas of reengineering um, with any of his people, if not him, with his staff, if not him. Well, I. They were discussed, some of them were discussed with the team at OMB who would have had access to him or other people in in his administration. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. the the challenge, though, if you're at the presidential level, is you're dealing with an enormous flow of, you know, what's going on geopolitically. And I think one of the reasons we end up making so many kooky decisions Domestically, is we're trying to centralize so that we can compete globally. You see what I mean? So if I'm going up against, you know, a billion people in China, then I want my 300 million people to get together and centralize so that I have some kind of ability to clout. Right. So, so if you look at what was going on in the White House, they were moving along to centralize because they wanted to. Um, you know, when we sucked huge amounts of money out of the developed world, what did we do? We slammed the emerging markets and then bought everything up cheap. Mm-hmm. So I think they were much more focused on the global game and winning at the global game than what in the world was going on domestically. If anything, they were just trying to get suck capital out so that they could buy up the monopoly board globally. Yes, I understand. And that's a very important image and comment that that really is the game at hand. It's global monopoly. Who owns well, the most? Do you remember? Do you remember the? Um, do you remember the 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 TV game supermarket sweepstake? I don't know. Okay, so I mean, I heard of it, but I never. Yeah. I wasn't a viewer. T- different teams of people would go in with a shopping cart into a supermarket. And they would and try you, to throw everything they could into their basket. Right. You had five minutes, and the person who came out but, with yeah. the highest total in their basket won. <laughs> so so what we're – in fact, the theme on the Solera Report this week is global supermarket sweepstakes because um, – Oh, my word. Well, but think about it. The Germans say they're going to take their gold out of, you know, out of storage in Paris, and all of a sudden – France is invading Mali, which just happens to be a big gold mining location. Gold resource, right. You know, do we think there's a connection? (laughs) Right. Um, Let's see now, right. France that hasn't really been in war in Africa in how many decades? You know, right. Well, but, you know, that's what what we've got. We've got everybody running for stuff. That's right. That's right. So please go on. I, I have interrupted you, Any, but I anyway, do want to so, hear so what in, happened with the Shaggy Dog story. Okay, so we were accused of, you know, a lot of times you get accused, uh, uh, we were accused of all sorts of wrongdoing, and then it turned out, oh, guess what, there was nothing wrong. And, um, yeah. and this was all of, because of your community wizard software, which all it was doing 
um, is showing, tracking the dollars from the federal budget down to the local county well, level. You know, these fights are never about what they're about. So if you look at the particulars of what they were accusing us, it had nothing to do with Community Wizard. But I think the fight was about centralization versus decentralization. So we were doing a series of things of which one was Community Wizard, but it was not the only one. So it was this data servicing business that we were doing in residential communities. And um, there was all sorts of reengineering of the federal budget that we were proposing um, I see. You know, we made a proposal to the pension funds that if they would invest in, you know, sort of re-engineering the economy in places and, and re-engineer the federal budget at the same time, they yes. could absolutely, you know, provide enough wealth to sur- support the baby boomers and on and yes. on and on. So so yes. we had a vision of how the American middle class could jump the curve on globalization and new technology and things could come out well, but it wouldn't allow you to suck out the kind of uh, capital that you could on a debt bubble, and particularly a fraudulent debt bubble. So let's step back. Let me just show you what happened, Mitch. What happened is that we bubbled the economy with mortgage and government and other debt. We sucked a huge amount of money out of the developed world economies, both legally and illegally. So, for mm-hmm. example, between 1998 and 2002, $4 trillion went missing from the federal government. It just missing. went missing. Just went missing. Unaccounted and for by the unaccounted, GAO. Undocumentable adjustments. And um, and you know who was the head of the GAO during that time? David Walker, who's now running around and telling us why we've all been profligate and need to change. So, yes. um, so, yeah. so, So all that money was moved abroad and reinvested abroad. Now, that debt bubble had in it tremendous amounts of fraudulent paper. Well, what happened? Of course, the bubble burst, and the fraudulent paper was causing all sorts of problems globally. What did we do? The taxpayers bailed out all the fraudulent paper. And now, for the last couple of years, we've been working through that bailout. Now, what is that? That's a financial coup d'etat. I issue a whole bunch of fraudulent paper. I use that to steal a whole bunch of money. The fraudulent paper collapses. I get the taxpayers to refinance it out. You know, it looks like $27 trillion-plus in gifts and loans. And then what's the next step? The next step is I've got to extinguish the criminal liabilities because there's all sorts. They're just Boku criminal liabilities inside of that. Oh, my. And what I think has happened now is they succeeded in doing that with QE3, with the Fed agreeing to basically buy up and shred all that paper, and now with the different bank settlements. And I think one of the reasons I believe that a variety of different forces are coming together to reinflate the the real estate is because we've now managed to extinguish the the criminal liabilities. Uh-huh. So financial conditions. And now yeah. I think the big issue, of course, this week is gun control. And I think mm-hmm. the reason that gun control is so hot is now that the Democrats have won, the big investors are saying, look, before we come in and re-engineer all the real estate, we want the population disarmed because we don't want to get shot. Oh, my. Yeah. Well, but think about this. If you, let's say uh, you're in Ohio, you're in middle America, you bought a $500,000 home, 
1999 with a $400,000 mortgage that J.P. Morgan Chase put into Fannie Mae. Mm-hmm. And you thought that was a perfectly responsible thing to do. You're hardworking. You have a good job. Well, yeah. sure enough, your job gets moved to Asia. You didn't expect it. Um, mm-hmm. And and you have trouble getting another job. Your wife gets sick, and there are all kinds of insurance. You know, the insurance you thought would pay doesn't isn't there. And mm-hmm. so you get in trouble. Well, what yes. happens? Well, you try and do a workout. They refuse to do a workout. You end up foreclosure, being foreclosed on. You get hit by an anti-deficiency judgment, so you're now having to finance the write down, um, and and you know, and now as a taxpayer, then suddenly you get called on to bail out Fannie Mae and J.P. Morgan Chase and all these guys. So you've yeah. lost the money on the mortgage. You've lost the money on your bailout. You're now being told that your pension fund is losing money because of mortgage fraud. Um, and you're now being told that your local taxes are going to go up because of the problems in the real estate market. So you're getting hit from all sides. So then the the election occurs, and the next thing you know, it's announced that Freddie and Fannie are going to do huge bulk deals of the foreclosure inventory into the big mm-hmm. investors. And sure enough, your old house gets transferred in at a much lower amount you know, than you were willing to do a workout in. Yeah. And then the federal budget gets reengineered to generate profits you know, for the guy who does those bulk deals at your expense. Meantime, you're being told that, you know, your Social Security retirement age needs to be backed up or other federal promises that have been made to you need to be changed because we need to tighten our belt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think... Oh, I th- it's like they have covered every base, it appears. Well, I would say this. The, the federal the federal finances have been managed outside the law mm-hmm. and this repositioning of the real estate has been managed outside the law and at this yeah. point i think there are there are many many places in america where you have well educated knowledgeable citizens lawyers doctors professional people who know that and they know how to use the law and the courts to protect themselves mhm and um you know, and I think I think I think we're looking at the the thing that concerns me is my question is is the you know what were the people who financed the elections promised? And I yes. think they were promised. You know, I think we're we're coming into now that the bank settlements look like they're pretty much done, we're coming into a land rush and a land grab and a reengineering of the land, particularly for some of the new technology which on top of everything that's going to go down is not only very ugly, but is certainly outside the law. Yes. So in other words, your understanding then, or your sense of things, Catherine, is that this entire matter of gun control is about disarming the people so that when there is this new land rush and land grab and a shift from the fossil fuel economy to, um, let's even say, a more sustainable type of energy economy, the land will all be owned by the very few, again, but even more massively, and no one will have any guns to protect themselves on a local level uh, from this land grab. Well, I I, I think that it's, it's not quite as simple as that. I would say... What they want to do is make sure that the wealth that results 
is as yeah. consolidated and centralized as possible, and that the control is highly centralized. And now, so, do you think that this has been thought through in this kind of absolutely. methodical way? Absolutely, because what you saw in the beginning of the 90s when they made the decision to bubble the economy mm-hmm. was um, they were absolutely clear they wanted to shift as much money out as possible and um, and consolidate control of the land and re-engineer the land. And I think I think a lot of this was seeing where new technology was going to go. And mm-hmm. you take a look at new technology and you think, okay, how can we as a group of, you know, how can the current governance structure stay in control um, with this kind of new technology which is so decentralizing and with, you know, building up wealth, you know, globally? So if we're going to re- yes. allow the emerging markets to all become middle class, how do we stay in control? Yes. So do, do I think they saw all of this ahead of time and and moved accordingly? Absolutely. And that's why yeah. I wrote the Dylan Reed story, and that's why I encourage everybody to listen. Sir James Goldsmith came to the United States in 1994 to lobby against the adoption of the Uruguay Round of GATT and did an interview with Charlie Rose. It's up on my yeah. blog. It's up on YouTube. It's Sir James Goldsmith with Charlie Rose in 1994. And if you read the Dylan Reed story and you watch that interview, it's so absolutely clear that yeah. this is really a top-down plan. I mean, the people who run the planet are absolutely... They are highly intelligent, highly strategic, highly competent people. They think yes. ahead. They know what they're doing. And they they have very long term. You know, in my experience, they're great planners. They plan, yes. plan, plan. And within those, pl- you know, those plans are like frameworks. And they, you know, within it, their things can be quite organic and evolve and blow up and things go wrong. I mean, when I was yes. a partner at Dylan Reed, the chairman of the firm would come in in January and he'd say, okay, let me tell you what's going to happen next and kind of lay out what was going to happen for the year. Well, that's one of the reasons I do the wrap-up on the Solari Report is I yeah. try and take you back. And he would always say, you know, I can tell you what's going to happen. I just can't tell you when because the mm. evolution of things was organic. But the vision, yes. you know, where I come from, if you decided you wanted everybody to go to Paris, you just figured out a way to make it profitable for everybody to go to Paris, and then lo and yes. behold, they did. It will it happen. It will happen. Yeah. Right. It wasn't. Yeah. A, it wasn't a conspiracy. It was the reengineering of the financial incentive system to get the herd to go where you wanted. But this also means, you know, needless to say, that you refer to this. You use the pronoun they, and we all have a sort of, um, you know, nod and grin and wink when it comes to who they are, and we all have our own, you could say, private notions of who they are, and. Uh, you also said before that you don't think that corporations rule the government, run the government, even though the last several uh, uh, Treasury secretaries have come from Goldman Sachs. One of them engineered the 2008 bailout right. with uh, Paulson, of course, with Bush. Well, they, Goldman and Sachs was in the lead of reengineering the housing bubble. I'm sorry? So Goldman Sachs engineered... If you oh, look at did. operationally who led yeah. the engineering of the housing bubble and the suppression of the gold price and the bubbling of the yeah. mortgage market, the so-called strong dollar policy. These were all legs of this, what's called the strong dollar policy. Goldman was very much operationally in the lead. Now, yes. here's the thing that's important to understand. Um, the U.S. government, when the, when the Federal Reserve was um, instituted in 1913, mm-hmm. um, 
one of the constructs of that whole system was the Federal Reserve, the New York Federal Reserve member banks ran the federal bank accounts. Mm-hmm. So the federal government doesn't run its money in one sense. It's you know it's the agent banks of the New York Fed, and and within those responsibilities, the New York Fed assumed responsibility for the Exchange Stabilization Fund, which is oh. a very private, non-transparent fund run <clears throat> for the U.S. Secretary by the New York Fed, but by the different New York Fed owners, because New York Fed is a private bank owned by its mm-hmm. members. And so one mm-hmm. of the big questions when you talk about J.P. Morgan Chase or Goldman Sachs, are they yes. trading on their own account? Are they, in fact, trading as an agent for the U.S. government in the exchange stabilization fund? Oh. Yeah, so so the relationship yeah. is much more... So you're saying it gets a little blurry. Well, not a little blurry, you know, very blurry, because you yes. have you have what really what what Eisenhower called the military industrial complex sure. and they are operating as sort of organic syndicates acting geopolitically in a very integrated fashion. So yes. you know, at yes. at some point when you look at the federal budget, <clears throat> as I said <coughs> you're talking about fractured kingdoms, you know, you're talking about more than nine intelligence agencies that we know of and a whole bunch more that we probably exists that we don't know of and they're exactly. always competing and fighting with each other and it's quite you know it's right. quite murky it's it's murky it's it's almost um it's not funny in any true sense of the term but it's virtually hilarious at how you know it's sort of like all the stuff of movies in hollywood how the cia and the fbi and the nsa and they're all like in one form or another withholding information from each other you know leading into the whole 911 debacle and you know who knew what when and you know that they weren't sharing information and within it there are some very true bona fide uh, intelligence people who really care deeply about the the state of the world and the state of the country. You right, know, there's a lot I'm of, sorry, what were you going to say? Yeah, there are a lot of deep confidence within those systems. Yes. Um, again, at the top, I you know I find tremendous competency, and yes. when they want you know when you want that bureaucracy to dance, there is yes. nobody more efficient than the U.S. Navy or, you know, the NSA or ONI when they decide to you know. When there is make something happen. You know, yeah, yeah. When there's when when there is alignment of all parties, it moves like a hot knife through butter. Yes. Uh huh. So uh-huh. Isn't think, that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Grid it's sort of a call by a higher order, if you will, a higher order. And right. at the end of the day, any corporation is really just composed of a series of individuals and many. People on the board of directors of one company are sitting on the board of another company, and there's a tremendous amount of cross-fertilization. So when we refer to they, um, the royal they, it's interesting. Would you well, say – Well, when I say they, what I mean is leadership. You know, so yes. the leadership who's but, governing this institution or that institution or – you know, you have collaborating committees that govern the the financial system, or certainly collaborate in yes. you know in the financial system like G8 or G20. Now, here's yes. the here's the mystery: as we centralize and centralize and centralize, yeah. and keep centralizing, 
you know, the question really is, at the top, who is they and why are they behaving the way they're behaving? Because they're clearly moving towards a totalitarian government. Yes. And, and the question is, why? And a single currency, no doubt, too. Well, and as I, you said, digitized, certainly. I, I think, you know, the ultimate control is a digital, and you don't have to have one currency, but digital currencies ultimately yes. Yes. give you the ultimate insight. Ultimate oversight. Right. Yeah. O- ultimate control over everybody. So, yes. so um, you know, Nicholas Negroponte, who used to run the MIT Media Lab, said mm-hmm. in, a, in a digital age, um, data about money is worth more than money. And so a digital currency yeah. gives uh, gives the centralized powers real-time intelligence on everybody and everything. Yes. And, and that intelligence is unbelievably valuable, and that's one of the great powers of the Federal Reserve System, is yes. that digital, you know, that data about money. But what's interesting, there's a counterpoint a countervalence energy, Catherine, that you and I experienced, in fact, directly uh, among the uh, speakers and our group at the conference in Holland. And not only that, but all over the world there is a movement toward, uh, like the book by David Corton um, on uh, Agenda for a New Economy, and the drive toward local economy. Okay, so I just, I just have to bring this up. <laughs> Please. I, I, not, I'm inviting you to, but I'm, I'm just not, saying that there's a, a polarizing countervalence to the centralization momentum. Okay, so I would say that there is a, um, that our world is intelligent. Yes. And And I'm talking about an intelligence that's loving. Yes, and ultimately, I, like I don't think the pro-centralization team is going to achieve its goals because mm-hmm. that intelligence is more powerful. But let me yes. just step back because I think one of the greatest obstacles to getting to a better place yes. is what I call disinformation. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm going to tell you a, a David Corton story. Another I, story. I, I like another this. Another story. Please. <laughs> I have a. Um, We're gathered around the fire. I have yes, a, um, uh, two two posts up on my blog called Material Omission Part One and Material Omission Part Two, mm-hmm. and um, they tell a story about David Corton. Um, a friend of mine found my work uh, when I published the Myth of the Rule of Law in London, and then another article on Solutions. They said, oh, you know, David Corton has to discover your work. You two have to be in cahoots. So yes, I sent, cahoots. <laughs> I, sent, I sent David Corton the myth of the rule of law. They, they introduced me by email, and I sent him the rule of law. Uh-huh. And he wrote back, and he said, oh, my God, I didn't think it was possible to tell the truth and stay alive. <laughs> and I wrote back, and I said, yes, you can. You you really can. You can, oh, and here, but here's what you have to do, and here's how you have to do it. And you know, yes. there's a certain way of doing it. But, yes, I think we can, and I think it's important because we need to bring transparency in a way that reduces the risk of the leaders because, you know, they can loosen up if we reduce the risk. Mm-hmm. So, uh, mm-hmm. and, and do it point. in a wealth-building yeah. way. And so, yeah. um, and not, att- you know, invite everybody, you know, to come into the Create Wealth team. Anyway, yeah. so he, 
uh, I said, I tell you what, would you like me to re- send my article on real solutions? And he said, yes, please do. Now, please mm-hmm. understand that I was living, um, you know, here I am completely targeted by 18 audits, investigations, 12 different pieces of litigation, you know, a nightmare financial oh, situation, God. and I'm living on but The campus. story you did not finish yet, by the way. I know, but it's so depressing. Yeah. <laughs> I know. You will, and, you'll and, you'll uh, be able to do that last part quickly, but okay, people so, have to understand so, the whole picture. Please so go on. I, I, um, anyway, so I'm living on peanut butter and jelly, and a group of wonderful entrepreneurs <laughs> out in San Francisco <laughs> had taken pity on me and put together yeah. a letter of leaders of the socially responsible community in the Bay Area saying, you know, won't you help this person? And one of them had been an old uh, colleague of mine, Judy Wicks, who ran a restaurant in Philadelphia, a wonderful restaurant. Uh, and uh-huh. um, and she, you know, she was one of the signers of those letters that basically said, you know, this person is, is okie-dokie. And so yeah. I sent David Corton the... Um, my article on solutions, and I never heard from him again. Instead, he called up Judy Wicks, yelled at her, she dropped, the whole effort scrambled, and as a result, I lost months of effort, and all my financial supports, or all the financial support from that effort stopped, and I literally was left without enough money for food. My utilities got turned off. And, oh, my God. Yeah, and that's when I realized, you know, I need to go to work helping people as an investment advisor because they'll pay me to help them make money. Um, But I can't deal anymore with, you know, the fact that you have, you know. And, you know, I've read some of his, David Corton's books since, and this is not a man who's telling the truth. Mm. He's just not telling the truth about what he knows about what's really going on. Now, if you said to me, who's really running things, I have to tell you, I've tried my whole life to figure it out, and I don't know. Yes. So, yes. you know, I don't know, and we can go the, down the rabbit hole of conjecture, but without going there, you know, what I have to say is I've certainly put, you know, in various forms and disclosed pretty much everything I do know. <laughs> so, yes. Yes. In the, it, so I've put down my pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and taken, you know, enormous risk to do that and tried to do it in a very constructive way and collaborate with other people Indeed. because I know that transparency is so, so very important. Um, what and, is it that you – what is it in your second piece that you sent him um, seemed to have caused that adverse reaction? I can't tell you. And you never I, spoke again? He would never respond to my emails. That is so curious. After all, he's the one who wrote When Corporations Rule the World. That's the book that sort of launched him. Right, but I think, think, you know, we're talking about modified hangouts. I can't tell you how many people I know end up going around into dead ends because you have somebody financed by the Ford Foundation coming up with a partial... Oh. You know, right. So I see. You see what I mean? Yeah. And yes, and I, I think one of the things that deeply disturbs they get the last detoured time, from their mission. Right. So so they they're giving you a fake map. Now, I come from the securities world. We were trained. You know, securities law says if I intentionally give you a false picture of something, 
that's a criminal felony. I can go to jail. Mm-hmm. If I sell you a security and 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 intentionally mislead you or omit material information, that is a criminal offense. It's called a material omission. That's why I call the blog post material omission. So yeah. why is David Corton writing books and and encouraging people to invest their time in solutions when he is materially omitting critical information? That's I when you I read, wouldn't have Right. An the last book that. I read by David Corton and I you know, I don't mean to beat up on David Corton because mm-hmm. you know, I can appreciate why somebody would like to make sure they can support themselves and not get killed. Um yes. you know, so my heart goes out to him and everybody else in that position. But yes. um I think uh in the last book I read by him he was talking about uh how the problem was, you know, Christians and as opposed to organized crime and uh you know, I think we try we try and divide and conquer and make other people out as boogeymen, and mm-hmm. and real solutions start with um, not falling into those traps. Whether it's you know inventing something called Al Qaeda, or saying yes. that Christians are the problem. Yes. So anyway, I so I would, please please uh, to go back to where we started. Let's. Let's try and get honest maps of what's going on, and let's not waste time in modified hangouts or disinformation, and let's feel free to admit, one, we don't know everything. You know, there's many of us feel a pressure to provide certainty, and two, to admit that it's dangerous to talk about the truth. And um, I once had, you probably know Hazel Henderson, wonderful Hazel Henderson, once said it. Yeah, she'll be on the show probably fairly soon, actually. Oh, good, wonderful. She said, um, yeah. She said, you know, she said the problem with Catherine Austin Fitz is she touched the third rail. <laughs> oh. Uh-huh. And for those of you who don't know, the third rail is in the in a subway system or a uh, transportation system. Yeah. You'll have two tracks and the wheels run on the tracks, and then you'll have a little gizmo that pops over the third rail, which is where the electricity runs. That's right. It's called and the live wire. Right, the live wire. So when we talk right. about the money... You know, yeah. one of the reasons we've kept even the most brilliant and educated people in our society sort of not understanding the financial ecosystems contiguous mm-hmm. to the world that they know is that then, you know, they can talk freely about policy and government this and that and, and how the world is run without ever really touching the third rail. Yes, indeed. And there are different ways. I mean, even since I mentioned Orwell before, you know, in Animal Farm, or if you look at The Wizard of Oz, or if you look at Alice in Wonderland, all of which had, of course, very deep political underpinnings. They were really stories of the body politic at the time. Um, used fable and allegory as a means of telling the story, because Otherwise, it is too hot and too inflammable. And, and that's and so, why, and I think that's a great idea because on the, if you if you listen to the Solari Report every week, we have a movie of the week. Yes. And um, you know, I always say in America, fact is fiction and fiction is fact. Because yes. if you tell a story, um, if you tell a story in nonfiction, you can create criminal liability and all sorts of dangers for people. Yes. If you tell the story in fiction you can help people understand the issues and the dynamics, um, and it's much safer for everybody. That's so right. I tend to That's use right. stories and, and wonderful documentaries to help people understand 
what the economy is, you know, what in the world's going on. Yes, indeed. And for some reason, people can really follow it very well, actually, you know. There's a, there's a value to all of it. But, you know, the world that you paint is globally and locally is that the Louises of the world uh, probably won't be all that effective no matter how much whistleblowing and trying to hold people's feet to the fire, it appears, and I'm really, I'm making it as a statement, but I'm really asking a question of you, Catherine. <clears throat> what is the way through this morass, this well, debacle, here's, here's, where here's everything the- that is supposed to be one way is actually quite another way? Well, I think um, I had a dear friend who ran for governor in Tennessee on the Green Party, and mm-hmm. he said, "You know, uh, a snowflake looks, you know, looks kind of lacking in power until you realize you get enough of them together, and they can shut down New York City." Yeah. So, so here's what I would say: the first yeah. thing we need to do is we are all financing the tapeworm with our energy, whether it's our food, our time, our money. Yeah. You know, whatever we we are admiring the tapeworm, we are supporting the tapeworm, we are working for the tapeworm. What yeah. we all need to do is what I call come clean. Do everything you can. You know, turn off the corporate media. Listen yeah. to your radio show instead. Yes. So they know yes. that because they're listening. But um, right. you know, get your money out of institutions which you know from the headlines are criminal in nature. <laughs> yes. Why would you want to bank with a mob? Get yourself to a credit union or a community bank that you know to be responsible or people that you know and trust know to be responsible. And the same thing, Mm -hmm. go throughout your life, your donations, your money. You know, do everything you can to support people of good character who are operating in a manner which is, you know, healthy for you as opposed to, you know, killing you. Um, Yeah. And so literally turn to everybody who is, is helping the tapeworm and communicate to them that their yuck factor just went up enormously. So part of this is <laughs> yes. this is stop feeding your enemy. And, yes. of course, part of it is seeing it, which is why the media component of this is so very important. And um, yes. Yes. anyway, so, so, so number one is stop feeding the tapeworm yourself. Try and come clean. The second yes. thing is if we want to change anything, we need power. And the question is, how are you going to get power? And and one of the ways you get power is seeing the, the extent to which we're all complicit in this. Yes. So yeah. I think it's very easy to see the corruption when it's far, far away. It's hard to see it when it's in your own life yes. and in your own actions. Um, mm-hmm. Do you remember my red button story I told it in Holland? Uh, it would be wonderful for you to share that with us. I loved okay. it. Okay. Yes. So, Please. so I was talking to a group of people called Spiritual Frontiers Foundation. Um, I'd been asked to give a speech. I remember at, them from years ago. Yeah. <laughs> really? Okay. Yes. And uh-huh. wonderful group of people. They have a conference yeah. on how to help our society evolve spiritually. And I had been asked to give a, a speech that later became an article called Narco Dollars for Beginners. And it was on the intersection of organized crime. You've got a wonderful sense of humor, I've got to say. I love it. (laughs) 
very well, important. I think that's our saving grace. That's why people like Woody Allen and Jackie Mason are my gurus. Oh, you know, I have Jackie Mason up on the blog this week. Oh, you do? Excellent. Yeah, he's got a wonder. I love Jackie Mason. Oh, I used to oh. always try and see Jackie Mason oh, when I lived in New York. Anyway, yes. so, yes. um, uh, so I was in the middle of the speech and describing the fact that the Department of Justice had recently told a reporter I was working with that the U.S. economy launders $500 billion to a trillion dollars of all dirty money. That was in 1999, right after, in 98, the the uh, testimony in Congress over the allegations of drug dealing by the intelligence agencies in um, South Central Los Angeles, the so-called Dark Alliance uh, yeah. uh, allegations. Anyway, so... so Is that the Gary the, Webb story yeah, of the, Gary, the CIA... Yeah, yeah. Um, Selling um, cocaine on the streets of L.A. and New York, Chicago, et cetera? Well, distributing it into the people who did. So, yes, yes, yes. So, right, right. Um, so I said to this wonderful group of spiritually evolved people, what would happen if we stopped being the global leader in money laundering? And they said, well, you know, the stock market would go down because that money would go, you know, to other stock exchanges Elsewhere. around the world. And yeah. we'd have trouble – Financing the government deficit and uh, and uh, you know <laughs> things could get pretty difficult. And so I said, okay, let's pretend there's a big red button up here on the lectern, and if you push that button, you can stop all hard narcotics trafficking in your community, your county, your state tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That's depending the people who control 500 billion to a trillion a year of, of all money laundering and the accumulated capital thereon. And out of 100 people dedicated to evolving our society spiritually, guess how many would push the button? One, five. One, one. So I said to the other 99, why would you not push the button? And they said, we don't want our taxes to go up. We don't want our government checks to stop. And we don't want our IRAs and 401ks to go down in value. Oh, my God. Well, but let me be the tough guy. The America for, you know, more than a century... Um, you know, we've been part of something 500 years old model called the central banking warfare model, which is the central banks print money and then the military forces, various people take it in exchange for cheap natural resources. How did we get the land in America, most of us? We stole it, right? Correct. We killed the people who were here and we stole it. Okay, so That's right. This exactly. Has been going on, this has been going on for centuries. And, and how did uh, how did South America get colonized? How did Africa get colonized? How did uh, Britain try to colonize all of Asia? Succeeded for a while in um, India, uh, partly for a moment in Japan, uh, China, right? So, et cetera. So the Bill of Rights in the Constitution, which we've in, all enjoyed the protections of, yes. was financed by running around the world and killing them yes. or stealing the land where we live. So we financed yeah. our commitment to human rights by destroying human rights globally. And now what globalization means is we have to we have to change. Either nobody has any rights or everybody has rights that we respect. And that is a huge change in culture because you're talking about a culture which is 500 years old that hasn't respected global human rights. Yeah. So so are yeah. we going to are we going to play win win lose lose or are we going to play win lose? And yes. it's that simple. And yes. we as a country and as a culture have never respected global rights 
all we did was pretend that we weren't compromising them because the profit came financially and we didn't have to do the dirty work. Yes, indeed. So we're all complicit, and now the question is not how do we push the red button, but how do we turn it green? How do we make money pushing the red button? Because, in fact, if you can make money pushing the, the, the button, then you can push it. Yes. And and we know that liquidating all of our people and communities, you know, uh is ultimately not a wealth building plan. <laughs> true, so, true, so, true. So but, I think the question is how as an entire society are we gonna change and each one of us are gonna have to change our minds. Mhm. We're gonna have mm-hmm. to change our minds about how we go about this thing called life and how we yes. respect other people and we can't just I'll never forget talking to a peace activist once who was banking at the bank I consider the single most corrupt bank in the planet. And I said, you know that's the most, you know, corrupt bank in the planet. Why are you banking with them? And he said, well, I save on ATM charges. <laughs> so oh so I said, my. you know, the problem is if you're going to go along with war, you should get a bigger kickback than that. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're right. going along for cheap. So, so you know, we've I always say that What uh, what bank is that by the way? Oh, I'm not going to pick a fight. <laughs> okay. I okay. will say this when I was well, um the way I came to this idea of why There're probably a good handful that qualify by the way, so it's not that mysterious. Yeah, I think I think the issue on the banks is uh you want to decentralize deposits and send a communication that, you know, the hardest thing to watch is when you're sitting in a boardroom and and you know that the consumers will always support you if you kick back, you know, $5 less ATM charges a year, yes. but they will never yes. support you in doing the morally responsible thing. The right thing, yep. Right. So yep. Um, so I like not, you know, because it's very interesting. If you look at the boards of a lot of financial institutions as we were going on in the bailout, they were mm-hmm. full of people I know who I believe to be excellent and honorable people. Mm. Um, I tell uh, I wrote a story called "The Hitman of Student Loans" mm-hmm. um, about uh, a former partner of mine who uh, became, you know, was clearly up to his eyeballs in all the horrible student loan stuff. And yeah. I wrote the story to help people understand, you know, that. You can't just explain the system by saying, oh, these are bad people. I tell the story of, I used to be on the board of Sally Mae, which is the, um, mm-hmm. at the time was the government-sponsored enterprise that securitized the student loans. And yes. I tell the story of why the bank, we had seven bank vice chairmen, and they were all excellent, honorable people. Yeah. Um, and many of them, you could tell, were appalled at the way the system was going and were fighting against it. So, um, you know, but they had no support from the wider population who clearly didn't understand what was going on. And I get back to transparency because I think if you, you know, Jeb Bush once said you can't, there's no political constituency for fiscal responsive, for financial responsibility was absolutely right. With transparency, Mm -hmm. you could start to create one. Yes, yes. You know, many years ago, Catherine, you probably know about the Grace Commission during the Reagan era, right. and I was a uh, a paying member to it because I was really? so outraged. Yeah, yeah, I was so outraged by what was being reported 
uh, by that commission as government waste. And right. I was raised essentially with a rather patriotic um, attitude, you know, even though I saw what I saw, what with the Vietnam War and, and the like and the role of the CIA, etc., etc., still I cared deeply about my country. Right. And the thought that they were wasting, I guess I have a an inherent sense of fiscal responsibility, the thought of $2,000 toilets and $500 hammers was way over the top for me. I thought I it just did not oh, compute but those are, those are, for me. Those are nothing. Those are those nothing. Those are nothing, absolutely. Yeah. But at the time, in my education, and for many, that was an outrage. I mean, we we're spending our hard-earned dollars in taxes only to be wasted and going to these private contractors who were doing everything they could to hoodwink the government, and the government didn't have enough due diligence to spend our money wisely because I always came from the place that this is our government. It okay, is so for I'm, I'm and by be the people. I know. How, I'm sorry? If, I'm going to be a tough guy now because this is what the, the issue comes down with, and I described this yes. in the Coming Clean Please. Beyond the Fiscal Cliff. Yes. If you, how do you say no to Which somebody? Which we wanted to come back to anyway, right. so I'm really glad you how brought you, that up. Yeah. How do you say no to somebody who has assassination hit teams working for them? Oh. How do you he, say no you to don't. somebody who can arrange for your child to be in a car accident? How do you say no to somebody who can arrange for you to have a heart attack and make it look like it was natural? How do you yeah. say no to somebody who's got a control file with pictures of your wife in a compromising situation? Mm. Okay, so yeah. we're we're talking about a system that is out of control because government officials do not have sovereignty. They don't have the power to say no. They don't have the mm-hmm. power to keep their conversations private. They don't have mm-hmm. the power. They don't have the power to say no because they're financially dependent. Yes. If J.P. Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs and the New York Fed don't go out and roll over the government debt and buy more government debt, you know they can't write the check. Yes. So you know here's the problem. Yes. You're the president. So this is the point the... about impunity that you have made a number of times. Right. So I was an honest government official, and I was then I worked as an honest government contractor for honest government officials who all mm-hmm. got run out. And I'll tell yeah. you a very funny story. I was at a, I'm a Christian, and I was at a Christian revival in 2000 with mm-hmm. a pastor who, um, a wonderful pastor from Dallas, and he mm-hmm. was in the Atlanta, in the Atlanta Convention Center, 100,000 African-American women in the Atlanta oh. Convention Center, and he brought wow. George W. Bush in, uh, He's from Dallas, so he brought George W. Uh-huh. Bush in by monitor. And uh-huh. everybody jumped up clapping for George W. Bush. You know, it was the campaign year. And yes. after it was over, I turned to the pastor who I was studying spiritual warfare with at the time. She had a wonderful class. Uh-huh. And she used to work for the DEA. And I said, you know, Patricia, there's nothing about Bush family allegations of narcotics trafficking and other wrongdoing that you don't know. Mm-hmm. And you just jumped up and chaffed for you know, cheered for him, and she said, well, he's yeah. going to be the win- winner. And I said, well, you know, I just lost, you know, a fortune in money and equity trying to stop this corruption, and you've never jumped up and cheered for me. And she said, yeah. well, you're a loser. And oh, and I said, my. so he's a winner and I'm a loser. And she said, yes, that's right. 
Well, but that's American society. We You're cheer right. for the guy who wins, and the guy who wins that's is the right. guy who has the money, and the guy who has the, you know, the the authority as defined by force. That's now, right. Now, when I say we have to come clean, you know, and the reason I put out Hero of the Year is my Hero of the Year is Joe Cross. Yes. You know, Jeffrey Smith is my hero. Phil Staples is yeah. my hero. My hero mm-hmm. are not the people who engineer the central banking warfare model. But right. what I believe, what my experience has been for the last 20 years is the majority of people still, you know, are are most interested in getting in good with the guys who control so that they can get the treats of the tapeworm. Yes, yes. So we're going to have to decide. I think you're right. I think you're right. Yeah, that it really comes to that. <clears throat> it really does. So let's just well, there's let me a crossroads. A, yeah, let me quick mention a couple times the tapeworm has been soundly defeated. Homeschooling, sound defeat. Mm. People said, "Nope, we don't care what you do to us. You're not controlling our kids." Number one, mm-hmm. got defeated yeah. on the swine flu vaccination. No, no, you're not going to mandate that. We're not going to take yes. it. Yes. They back down. Right. Same thing's going to happen on gun control. We see, um, we see Clinton, Bill Clinton, who, uh, you know, he and I disagree about many things, but he's a very astute politician. Get in private meeting with the big Democratic donors, and he said, you know, I'm from a rural state. You are going to wake a sleeping giant. You'd better back off. Don't do this. Mm, really? Yeah. Interesting. You're, in, you're you going to wake that. the sleeping yeah. giant if they try and push gun control. They're going to wake yep. a sleeping giant. They're in for a real fight. Well, you probably heard about, if you didn't see, Alex Jones on Piers Morgan. That was one explosive conversation, well, largely I, about you know, gun I, control. I, Did you see it? I put up on my blog, I, I think Piers Morgan, you know, I vote for Piers Morgan being expelled from the country, too. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. If, you, if you look at the Constitution... Uh, it's a wonderful Marine, Joshua Boston, who was uh, on a series of the shows, including Pierce Morgan and Joshua. The, the I think it was from CNN. The, no, it wasn't Pierce Morgan. It was someone else. Said, "Well, if they pass a law saying you have to turn in your guns, what are you going to do?" He said, "That's not a law. It's unconstitutional. An unconstitutional law is not a law." Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there are many of those, by the way, many. Yeah, there are many. So, there but are I think many, on this yes. one out, particularly in the rural areas, yes. you know, it, guns, oh, gun ownership is a very different thing in the rural areas than it is at 72nd and Broadway in New York. Yeah. So when I lived at 72nd and Broadway, different. I didn't need a gun, but I live in a rural area. I need guns and I need semi-automatics because the home invasion comes in gangs of three. Yeah. So, so this is going to be a, you know. Mm. A right. very touchy thing, yes. No, you're well, right. No, this, there is, are... this is the difference between there is no way that 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 someone who holds themselves responsible to protect their family mm-hmm. and in a situation where you have significant crime, I mean, yes. the drug gangs in rural America are very significant and dangerous. And if you mm-hmm. think that people are not going to, you know, they're not going to give up their guns because they can't. Yes. It is too dangerous, and, you know, if you read the Bill of Rights in the Constitution, 
we believe that our ability to protect ourselves comes to us, our freedoms come by divine authority. Yes. The government doesn't have the authority to in any way impair them. That's right. In so. fact, the Second Amendment is there largely because of <clears throat> Jefferson's words that we need protection from a tyrannical government. Right. Well, I, you know, and here's here the amazing are. thing. My philosophy of coming clean we is We just have a couple more minutes left, but I really right. want to hear what you have to say. If, if the president and vice president want, you know, feel we should disarm, then yes. I would suggest that they uh, arrange for their security details and the security details for their family to disarm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But so long yes. as they want... As they, as so long as they if want, they want to, us to, then they should as well. Yeah. They should do it first. That's what leadership is. So yeah. as long as but you know, right there now, leadership. Well, right now, their children are guarded. Their children and grandchildren, you know, to the extent it applies, are guarded with guns, and yes. and our children and grandchildren, as their children need that protection, so do our children. That's correct. That's correct. You're thinking and speaking logically and rationally and ethically, but that's not the so-called uh, true rule of law in our country. Well, hasn't it is the been true for rule a long of law time. because I'll tell you a little secret. Having gone through an extraordinary experience litigating with the federal government, you know, which around the computer, maybe you can just finish that one story there, just so it's not hanging in the ethers. Uh, well, well, I litigated, uh, the 12 cases came down to three. There was one main one we won. It was a miracle. <laughs> uh-huh. uh-huh. And, then, and then everybody appealed everything. And um, if you look at the, at the speed at which the dollar was diminishing, I figured my settlement at that point in gold was the best I could do. Uh-huh. So, so I settled, but we essentially we won, and I I forced the process long enough to force everybody into court, and they had to prove that they'd never had any proof of any wrongdoing whatsoever. It was very interesting. The the one of the last days in court, I just have to tell you, yes. there were three different groups on the other side of this one situation. There was a whistleblower, there was the Department of Justice, and there was HUD. And their lawyers didn't trust each other. They were such a sort of funny group. And oh one of them said, you don't know that that's true. And the other said, yes, I know it's true. Fitz said it and pulled out a document that I'd signed. And they all agreed that it was true because I had said it. And I realized, oh, my God, this has gotten so bad that the only person that everybody trusts, including the people trying to destroy you, is me. And uh, it was quite lovely, you know. I thought, oh, okay. that is an awesome. This really should be made into a film, I tell you. And then we'll make sure the Solari Report picks that as the <laughs> film of the year. I, I would only only ever agree to make it into a film under two conditions. It had to be a comedy, and it had to have a happy ending. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. I agree. I agree. <laughs> oh, my word. Thank you for sharing that, Catherine. That's awesome. Mm. I know you have one final you have one final point to make about that little secret, having been through this all for decades from the place of government and the private here's, sector here's, here's thoroughly. Here's the little secret. Here's the little yeah. secret. Yeah. We don't have an economic problem. We don't. We have a political problem. Uh huh. We have a tapeworm, and the tapeworm is weakening the body politic. 
Yeah. So if you if you look at what happens, you know if you bring in when uh, when I was in Hamilton, we would do these simulations to re-optimize the economy based on what we were finding, and what we discovered was that the the wealth that can be created, particularly with the implementation of the new technology that you and I know exists, is just exponentially yeah. fantastic. You know that's yeah. why they want to control the land because the wealth creation yeah. is so fantastic. So sure. so there is no. Economic. We only have 15 more seconds. We, there is no economic problem on planet Earth. There's a political problem. So we have every reason to be optimistic, but we do have to face and come clean from the political problem. And so let's begin. Let's do it. Catherine Austin Fitz, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. It was just fabulous. We <laughs> pushed it to the very end because you're so enjoyable. See, now I know why everybody wants to be on your show. It's so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being on with us today. Okay. Your website, solari.com, S-O-L-A-R-I.com. Catherine, thanks so much. We'll have Thank you. you. Have a great night. Thanks. You too. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for A Better World. Visit us on our website, www.abetterworld.tv. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to seeing you all next week.